Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with Hamza Shambari, construction technologist at Disrupt Tech. Hamza, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me here. So let's start with what Disrupt Tech is. Disrupt Tech, in a nutshell, is the corporate venture arm of Haskell. We were kind of like started as uh, more of the, the you know the technology group that looks at all these new solutions, mm -hmm. things that help us become safer, more efficient, better at what we do, but at the same time also capitalize on it if there is any investment opportunity. Excellent. And so it sounds like just even from your description that there's been a little bit of a process. Talk to me about how this started. Yeah, that's, that's always the interesting story because we started back in 2018, you know, it starts with new leadership that was promoted from within that, that looked at where we're at today as a company or, or back then as a company and where we want to head out. And one of the pillars that, you know, the new leadership started talking about is, is innovation and being on, on the cutting edge, being the leader of the pack, so to say, and technologies and, and new processes, new, new methods that help us be better. And of course, they they had the vision, they had the the resources, and just like any other company, right? You start looking at who's going to lead this effort. So as everybody else, you know, you, you look at VDC group, you look at IT group. Either of those can function in that regard, but they also have a full time job on the side, so it becomes a little bit less efficient. So that's why they stood up Disruptech. They hired um, me, kind of from within the company. I come from the VDC group pulled out to to be part of this movement, so to say, and brought in Cutler Nup, who's, who's the director that oversees this with a couple of other um, guys here and there. But the, the funny thing that you <laughs> kind of like alluded to is like how we started is we hit the ground running, right? We looked out there, we saw that there is already hundreds of solutions that nobody has even looked at before, right? So we use like two or three here, um, ad hoc. Some job sites have some other solutions different from, from ones that, you know, you see in the office. Uh, so we started just, you know, just looking, just immediately entertained any demo, any opportunity to look at new solutions, new software. And we kept going and, and we looked at literally everything under the sun in terms of how it can help us, how it can make us better, more efficient, uh, safer. Um, but then the funny part is, all right, so now you, you've looked at all these companies. Uh, they first start to <laughs> mush together because there's so many funky names out there. I'm yeah. sure you're, you're aware of that. Yeah. And at the same time, there is a lot of overlap between some of the solution on what they're trying to solve for. What, what is the problem statement, right? Yeah. Um, so it became a little bit, there is a lot of, a lot of you know, fogginess and trying to figure out what solution is solving for what, that's when we kind of like hit the brakes a little bit and said, um, we need to, we need to be looking at this a little bit more methodically rather than just, you know, sitting down on demo calls and trying to remember what happened and just taking notes uh, on the side. So that's when we said, yeah, let's figure out, you know, how are we going to store this in a, in a more structured manner that we can easily more efficiently put, you know, apples to apples together for, for you know, solutions that are uh, competing in the same space. But at the same time, what other tech stack do they integrate with? Because that became a very important point. 
that's one of the first questions that we ask is like, do you integrate with A, B, and C? If not, then thank you very much for your time. I'm not interested in really looking at what you're trying to solve for because we cannot have, you know, start a new endeavor and go through looking at something that's going to become its own silo at some point. So that's kind of like part of, of, of the methodical look into, into all these different solutions. And again, it's like we're, we're heading up almost 400 solutions that we've not only like looked at, but these are solutions that we sat on demos, that we talked about, that we understand exactly what they do and what tech they, they integrate with. But then the flip side of that is how do you implement it, right? How do you pilot it? How do you test it? How do you make sure that, you know, what they say they provide is actually what they do provide? And that's that's the other part of, of the struggle early on, which is like, we find a solution that's like the the next best thing, you know, and we go to a project team and we say, hey, we need you to start looking at this. We need you to start implementing this. And I'm sure you can imagine how that went. <laughs> um, so that that was kind of like our us trying to push technologies on our on our team and our job sites and our even in office because because Haskell is kind of like a design build. So we have an entire fleet of architects and, and engineers. Um, and that that didn't go as well. So that's when we kind of also went back and said, how do we approach this a little bit more efficiently, which is advertising, mm-hmm. believe it or not. We, we are kind of like becoming more. And I, I tell that to every other solution uh, providers that we talk to is like, I become, if I believe in your solution and I, I understand it fully and I know what it, what you provide, I become an internal salesperson for your <laughs> For your solution within Haskell, right? So I go in and I try to spread the word. We have like our own in, uh, internal kind of newsletter that we put out there that we highlight different solutions. And we start getting inbound from people that are intrigued about mm-hmm. a specific solution, right? So they're saying, hey, I actually like that idea and I want to try it. So that becomes, you know, your pull methodology. So they're pulling the technologies out of us rather than us pushing it on them. So there's a lot I want to pull out of this because, you know, you guys have learned an awful lot. And it, it sounds to me like there's value in the first kind of just diving in and just seeing what's there. I mean, you don't want to be wasting time of, of potential partners, but at the same time, you learn something just from getting out there, right? You, you kind of understand Absolutely. a little bit of what it's like to, to even hear from a technology company and, and start to get used to how they're going to view the world differently from you. And and sometimes you have to unpack some of the enthusiasm (laughs) and say, well, you know, maybe it's not going to be quite as easy as you think. But then you talked about, I want to dig into this one a little bit. And that is, it sounds like you've evolved the way to keep track of the companies. And and I would, I would ask if that's a a knowledge management approach. So how are you, how are you guys keeping track of these 400 and growing number and also your responses to them and, and so on. It's kind of CRM. It's kind of knowledge management. How have you guys gone about that? That's that's exactly what it is, Hugh. It's a CRM. And it's funny to say that on the other side, because a lot of these solutions are not really customers of ours, right? We're going yeah. to become customers of them. But we've flipped the script a little bit and, and we're using a CRM that you know ties directly into our um, Office 365 and, and kind of like updates all the records uh, we log any interaction internally with our, with our team or with that specific technology provider. And 
what emails were sent, if there is any proposals, if there is anything that was approved, NDAs, all of that is being logged in a methodical way. But the coolest part of it, which is kind of like assigning um, kind of custom fields in a sense, which is like, so two things is like one, what is the, the technology type? Right. right. So is it, is it augmented reality, virtual reality? Is it IoT? Is it sensors? Whatever it is. And then um, the, the bigger thing, which is like, what what is it providing? What is it solving for? Right. So we call that the theme. So we look at, you know, anything that is with reality capture is, is a theme that's different from tracking and monitoring. And some some of those kind of overlap. But a lot of times it's like when somebody kind of just walks into my office and says, hey, this, I have this pain point. I have this project. As you know, of course, nobody, nobody wants to talk to me unless they have a deadline, unfortunately. But it's like, I have this project that I need to do A, B, and C before Friday. Yeah. Do you have anything? <laughs> so that, that kind of like helps me very quickly filter out. Uh, a lot of times I can remember a couple of solutions off the top of my head. People that I've talked to, I've, I've connected with that I, you know, you know about the relationships, right? When you connect with someone, you, you kind of start remembering that. But there's other solutions that, you know, we might have just sat on a demo. So we didn't really connect in person or it, it, there's a lot of them. So some of them drop. So it's, it's really cool to have a CRM that easily filter by technology type, by the theme, by whatever it is that, that we're trying to get at. And, and it comes down to a list of four or five that I can immediately on the spot give to this person and say, here are four different solutions that solve for what you're just telling me about. Let's take a look at them. Let's sit down on, on demo calls with them, or you can pick one right now and we can hit the ground running. I love that. And it's, again, the same reason why you would have a CRM for sales. Is you can keep track of responses, reactions, notes, and so on that you're never, I mean, 400 is a lot to keep track of in any, in any sense, but certainly remembering how it went and your impressions and, and so on is just impossible if you're not organizing it. Um, I love that Absolutely. you guys are using a, a CRM. It sounds like it's one from the Microsoft stack or one that works well with the Microsoft stack, which is also interesting. Well, let me ask the next kind of piece of the process that you, you outlined there is this idea of piloting, but you guys have really learned that, that going out and searching for pilots is harder than letting people know that there's some potential things that could be piloted and have them come to you and say, I have a use case for this, which, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing that after the fact, you're like, well, of course we're going to do that. But nobody knows that in the beginning when you're trying to figure out 10 different things at once. How have you guys, you mentioned that you do sort of internal advertising. What, tell me more about how that works and, and what you're finding is the most effective way to pull in a brief and, and get a pilot off the ground. Yeah. So Marketing is, again, the, the first part of it, right? So again, awareness out there and people interested in, in, in a solution. But once we kind of set that out and we get somebody who's interested, we sit on a demo, we understand, you know, any limitations. That's something that I always try to put out there is like, okay, so this is what it does, but this is what it doesn't do. <laughs> you have to always kind of like remember that as well. And, and um, how do you guys figure that out? Do you do you do your own little, when they're demoing it, do you try to put it through extra paces so that you can really, really think through what the limits might be? Because obviously- Absolutely. If there's, if yeah. There, yeah, if there is a free trial or if there is like a, you know, a, a sandbox environment that we can play around, man, I, 
I tell that to everybody else that I talk to also is like, just, just give me a demo and I'll try to break it. That's, that's my job. My job mm -hmm. is to break your software and get to the limitation. Um, but the, the funny part is, is also on the demo calls, we, we ask the tough questions, right? We, we don't just, you know, let the salesperson tell us about the solution is like, no, let, tell me, does it do a B and C exactly? Right. Not, right. you know, I, I, I've talked to a lot of salespeople. I love them, but some of them, you know, love dancing around specific questions. So it's just about, you know, going back and asking the question again, a little bit more clearly is like, does it do this? Right. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of like the part of that, that we try to log in and understand what are the limitations of each solution is um, before we get into the demo. But that's an important, an important piece of, of, ensuring like the pilot is, is set up for success is, is what we have as an implementation plan. Um, and that's something that we have to have in writing shared with every stakeholder in that pilot project. So making sure that, you know, we set out what the solution is, what the timeline for the pilot is, what the roles and responsibilities for each person that is involved in that um, pilot. And then more importantly, what are the success criteria? What is What does this look like um, if we come like three, six, nine months from now and say, this is the best thing ever or not, right? What are, what are the qualitative aspects of it? But also what is the quantitative? How is it going to, what are the numbers that we're trying to see? Is it going to save us like 50% time? Is it going to reduce our costs by certain percentages? I like to use percentages because if I don't have the benchmark, <laughs> then I can't say save me three hours, right? But if, if I say save 50%, then I can go back retroactively and see how long it takes to do that later on um, and, and how long it takes to do it. And you um, can scale it more easily. You can understand it at scale more easily as a percentage than as a number, right? Absolutely. So what are some examples of pilots that you think have gone really well? It's fine if you want to mention names or don't, but what are some examples of, of kind of something that's gone through the process you just described that you're, you're pretty happy with? There's a couple of them. One of them is a smaller pilot, but um, like a near map. As we looked at it and we said, this this might be interesting. We talked to a couple of our business development guys uh, and gals that love showing to the clients what the project's going to look like, relying heavily on Google Maps or dated or lower res. So that's something that caught fire like almost instantly and immediately became a hit that we try to scale uh, internally as much as we possibly could. But that's that's kind of where our role stops at that point. Once we pilot something, we document it, we uh, report on it, right? With all the analytics, with all the, the data that we collected, the feedback, um, and hand it over for operations, right? And say, here's, here's what we did. <laughs> here's how it went. Here's our, you know, recommendations. Here's what disrupt tech things Haskell should do with this. But then after that, our hands are off and it becomes kind of like an operations thing, whether they want to scale it or not, how much do they want to scale it and all that stuff kind of falls back on, on operations. But that was, that was like one example. Others was like hollow builder, pipe, closeout. Those are really, really successful pilots that went through, through the paces. Really, really interesting. So the other element of what uh, Disrupt Tech does is as, as an investor, how did that come about? Yeah, that would, uh, was actually part of, of the vision that 
I would love to take ownership off, but that was like before before I even was brought into this this group. Our executive leadership saw this as an opportunity, not only to position Haskell in terms of of finding the best solutions out there to make us better, uh, deliver better projects faster, safer, but at the same time, how do we capitalize on that in terms of you know investments in terms mm-hmm. of return on value that you put in at the beginning? So they set they set very specific criteria. It's like here's here's how much you can you know put out there for companies that you're vetting that you're looking at. And what we started off with is you know we don't have the full resources to do full due diligence and whatnot. So we relied heavily on VCs at the beginning, right? So we were doing investments and in funds here and there, and just making sure that we're keeping track of that. But once we got a little bit more comfortable with that. Then we started making our own kind of direct investments in the space. And, and we're thinking that's that's going to hopefully yield very, very good results in the long term. That's the hard that's the hard part, Hugh, is like trying to explain that to <laughs> to the board that, you know, this is a longer term play. Right. And this is not, you know, a one or two year investment that that's going to return immediately. Right. Well, that's really interesting, though, that your first steps were as a limited partner. That's what it sounds like. Right. You guys were LPs in a couple of funds. Absolutely. And then, and then over time, as you understood, and probably made some hiring decisions as well in terms of folks that that kind of know the some of the ropes of being a VC, but that you kind of grew into the confidence to say we're going to make standalone investments. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's really smart. I mean, it's so funny how the, <laughs> the the kind of risk mitigation approach of construction how it translates into other things like like investment. Right? Is you you de-risk the process, which it's funny. That's also what investors do, right? Is, is how do I de-risk this investment? So it's at least, I can at least stomach it. <laughs> <laughs> right now, absolutely. And, and that's, that's, I mean, part of it is, is, is the whole learning curve, right? It's like we're, we're learning as we're doing, but we, we had passed on, on direct investments in the past that we are regretting passing on. So that's why we're, we're taking a more closer look now at, at companies that we, we come across. Yeah, that's interesting. How do you guys think about investment versus partnering versus just piloting? Is there, is there a, a kind of a, a rule of thumb or is it really based on what the business needs or how do you guys kind of approach that? I think it depends heavily on where the company or the startup that we're talking to is and their you know growth cycle. Companies that we come in, they're, they're early on, they're just raised their seed or they're even looking for a seed round. Those become partners very quickly, especially if we believe in their solution, if we test it out very quickly, not not in a kind of like full-blown pilot in a sense, but those become partners. We can kind of become more um, involved into their, you know, their roadmap, their, their product development, stuff like that, that we can guide them. And they love that. They feed on that, right? It's like, yes, here's here's a potential client that's actually giving me valuable feedback that I can use today. And, and my and my product, but on the other side of it, so you get to to companies that are a little bit more established. They raise their Series A. They're going even for Series B at sometimes. Uh, they're raising you know fifty to eighty mils. They're not you know they're not as interested as as getting your feedback and growing with you. They're more in like we figured it out. Here's how it is. You know, kind of buy it or leave it in a sense. But we also kind of still look into that as, as solutions that, that would help us um, be more efficient as well. Interesting. And so one of the things that, that I've talked to folks about that are in a 
a corporate VC or you know a, a VC that's that's associated with a with a with a company is the strategic imperative that you're given can really be difficult to get right. You know what I mean? Like you are asking a board to think at a different time scale than they're frequently thinking. And as a result, sometimes that it blends that, that I need you to be a strategic investor, not a purely financial investor, or I need, I need you to make up your mind how you're making individual, you know what I mean? It can be all over the place because it's up to you. How yeah. do you guys think about that? Is it purely when you're making an investment? Is it purely financial? Is that like the main criteria? Far, far from it. We, we are, we are, it's part of our investment strategy is, is we're only going to invest in a startup that we can use internally. So phase one of our due diligence is pilot, right? Put it in front of our people, get their feedback, understand if it's something that works with our tech stack that works today. And then it was like, all right, so now let's evaluate your actual numbers, where you're headed and stuff like that. But we kind of try to play a lot more in the strategic partner rather than, than the financial aspect. That's really interesting. And do you find that other VCs that are, are you know, either a little less category specific like to see that you're there? I mean, that's not like you're a requirement, but I would imagine a more generalist VC would like to see that someone who has tried it and is, you know, really putting your money where your mouth is. Absolutely. We get a lot of that inbound from, from VCs that are trying to get our point of view of a specific solution that they're, they're evaluating that they're on, on, their, on their pipeline. Um, and and we're, we're more than happy to do that. We've shared a lot of experiences and a lot of uh, our interactions with, with different solutions, good, bad, or indifferent. We, we're kind of like trying to help the entire ecosystem and not just a, a specific company or a specific vertical, so to say. But yeah, that, that's something that we, we run across a lot with, with other VCs is like, uh, because, you know, they're looking at it from a financial aspect. They understand, that, of course, they understand the, the, the product and what it delivers and what the problem statement is, but they haven't seen it in action, right? So that's kind of where we fill in a lot of that gap. So us and, and other GCs in our size as well. Yeah, I can imagine. It's funny how the tone changes when you're not acting like a GC, but you're acting like a VC. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. But where where it's a lot more, it can be a lot more collaborative. Like there, there is competition, but it's different. Your main competitor is the, is the risk of the startup's failure, right? Like that's the big Absolutely. risk, the big pressure. Yeah. So I, I just, I, I'm sometimes surprised at how much investors will share with each other, whether it's a deal they can't do because of they already have someone in the space or, you know, asking each other what they think. I mean, that's great. It makes the whole thing better that people can explore and understand risk collectively instead of everybody being on their own. So that's great. Yeah, um, absolutely. So now that you've got this, this view of, of really, obviously where construction has been being in a GC and where it is right now being in a GC, but also where it's going at different timescales. I mean, it's a really interesting perspective, right? Where you can see a bit of the past, a lot of the present, some of the near future, and then the investment side is looking at the you know, three to five to 10 year, in some cases, future. How are you seeing things change over the course of the last three or so years that you've been at Disrupt Tech? But even before that, when you were in BDC, you were also kind of keeping an eye on, on where tech is. How have you seen the ground shift? Integrations, <laughs> to be honest with you. That's, that's where a lot of the companies are, are kind of pivoting a little bit. We've seen a lot of changes and and solutions that we've already evaluated, some some we even piloted, that they're now changing a little bit 
just because they found out a different angle that helps them become more integrated into the whole ecosystem of what is a construction project, right? And at the end of the day, it all comes down to data, right? What are we, what are we trying to see? What are the insights that we're trying to understand? And are we open to talking to each other as solutions, you know, and getting to the bottom of it, getting to, to actual or actionable insights that, that would help the project be more successful. That's kind of like the trend where we're seeing is like everybody now is trying to play um, nice with all the other solutions. That was definitely not the case in 2018, 2019. Everybody was like, no, this is our data, whatever. And then you can, you, you can view it in my dashboard. Everybody had their own dashboard. Now everybody's like, let's all get on, you know, just, just integrate to, to a Power BI or something similar to that and, and just take a look at it that way. That's great. How much do you find that you are or your IT team can, needs to be a, a referee? Because people aren't necessarily going to agree on data models and, and description. I mean, you know, the day job I have at CSI is an example of that, is that specifications were, are organized by master format and some other standards that allow things to, you know what I mean? Like that before, yeah. before APIs, there was still the need for someone who doesn't know someone else to be able to read their, their plans and their spec book and so on. How much, and that, that's still going to be the case, right? Is one CTO is going to make some choices about, about labels and data models and all that that are necessarily different from someone else because they don't collude. <laughs> How much do you find that, that you're, you're growing internally or less internally, the, the, the ability to kind of bridge some gaps and, and, and make things talk to each other, even if they want to, they, the, the data models may not, not match up and, and, you know, tomato, right. tomato. <laughs> yeah, that's a big point you and for us we came to a conclusion that says you know we're going to use procore right and even if anybody any other company that uses autodesk construction cloud or, or Aconex or whoever or like oh, CIMC, they're just different you know project management hubs right so that that's that's where you have to start is like what is your central hub looks like and then how do you structure that data in that hub and then all of these other solutions, all these different point solutions have to go back to the hub and the same data structure. So that's why our first question is always like, do you integrate with Procore? <laughs> right? And if you're inputting data into Procore, and if anybody, I'm sure a lot of a lot of your listeners have worked in and with Procore or in Procore at some point, they understand that, you know, it's very structured, it's very um methodically rigid in a sense that no, I, you can't just dump data in there. It has to be very specific. It has to have these um, specific names. And that helps us on the other side of it is creating all these different dashboards that you can change between the different projects and immediately have a better look at what's what's going on in that project at that specific time. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I've been an early fan of of Procore's marketplace. I mean, to me, it's it really took a page from Salesforce's older marketplace. And I think it it does what Salesforce does also, which is, you know, take away the need to integrate by doing it for you, which I think is fantastic. And it, it obviously in Procore's case, they invested really heavily in a team to make it easy to onboard. Absolutely. So there really is no excuse. I mean, I've done it myself a few times now. It's very well managed, which is great. Yeah, but then you got the other side of it where that, that that's where we, we get in trouble sometimes with IT. Oh, I can <laughs> as, imagine. As, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the data structure is is one side and it's, I mean, we're solving it with this, you know, 
Procore integration, right? Because we know that the data is going to come in at a certain look and shape and feel. But the flip side of it, which is security, right? So how secure is that solution? Where are they saving their data? Who can have access to it? And all that stuff that um, a lot of times, a lot of these startups, especially, you know, seed level, they don't have the full infrastructure or, or a specific, you know, data security person that's handling that. So it becomes really tricky for us, even, even on a pilot scale, to actually put it through the paces and understand their product more. And that's why we're kind of going back to the drawing board with IT and saying, hey, let's, let's find a project that we can scrub all identifiable data from and use that as our, you know, as our sandbox for, for anything else that we want to test. But that's still a, a hurdle to, to be overcome. It is tough. You know, the thing that is not always obvious, or maybe it's glaringly obvious, is early startups, they're breathlessly getting their product out the door. And, and they, they don't always think about security. A mature CTO or even CEO should know that, but it doesn't mean they do. Um, a lot of times it's people with a vision for how the world could be, and, and they may or may not really have been through the paces of building something before. Um, this is really great. Let's end with any statement you have about where you think this is all going, like what your investor hat is seeing three to five years down the road. Oh, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> There's a lot that's happening and, and a lot of changes in the industry in general, not only in terms of, you know, capturing what's happening on the job site. That's been, you know, since day one, that, that was kind of like the first startups that we looked at. It's like reality capture analysis of what's happening on the job site. The other big part of it has always been communication, right? So what is, who's talking to who, who's having the latest and greatest version, who's working on a previous version. We've seen that in and out. But I think where we're headed is is a lot of automation of, of all of that stuff. And I know a lot of people kind of get get skeptical when you start talking about robotics and where the robotics are, are going to take a lot of the mundane tasks and, and the dangerous tasks. I think there is there is that big opportunity for the industry in general to, to really bring down recordable incidents or incidents in general, even um, from, from job sites like that should become part of the past is like we we need to be looking back in like 10 years from now and say i can't believe we used to have incidents in our job site right it's just because you have a lot of talented people that can do skilled work but at the same time they don't have to be in dangerous situations to do that so you can you can send in a robot or, or something that assists them even remotely that they, they can work through the robot to install certain aspects that, that you can get to it safely. I love that. What a great way to end. Hamza, <laughs> thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. 